0: This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Fitching scams continue to nibble away at bank accounts and reputations. Avoid emails promising you leaked pictures of YouTube stars. Chinese espionage against U.S. targets rise. U.S. intelligence officials worry that failure to play a long game puts the country at a disadvantage with respect to innovation. The Joint Chiefs small electronic warfare issues. Reality Winner makes a plea agreement in her espionage case. The U.S. Supreme Court decides a landmark privacy case. And the journey from ecstasy tablets to Iranian spying is a short, sad road. From the CyberWire studios at Datatribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire Summary for Friday, June 22, 2018. Phishing scammers are showing an ability to bypass natural language-based anti-phishing protections and induce Office 365 users into compromising their credentials. We're midway through the baseball season, and this prompts us to reflect on an analogy with information security – If zero-day exploits are grand slams, big, damaging, spectacular, and rare, then fishing is small ball, working the count, hitting away from the shift, pitching to contact, hit and run, and so on. And fishing remains a perennial problem in all of its tiresome but successful forms. And what are the fish biting on these days? To move away from our baseball metaphor and back to angling, Leaked images of YouTube star is serving as surprisingly compelling fish bait. It's especially prevalent in South Korea, but users everywhere should avoid this come on. There are, of course, such things as YouTube stars. And there are, reportedly, leaked and revealing images of those stars. Stay away. Read a good book. Take a walk. Travel. Divert yourself. But don't click. Phishing has more victims than just the unfortunate curious ones who click. The U.S. state of Oregon became aware Monday that an email account using its Oregon.gov domain had been compromised and used in a massive phishing campaign. The direct damage phishing does to those who fail to recognize and spit the hook is well known, but those whose accounts and domains are hijacked also suffer. Oregon is still struggling to get its domain removed from the many blacklists to which it was added after the phishing campaign. Chinese espionage against U.S. targets increases as trade tensions between the two countries rise. U.S. officials seem to be experiencing two minor Sputnik moments, call them Sputnishki. Speaking at the Capitol Hill National Security Forum, NSA Deputy Director George Barnes says the U.S. isn't good at playing a long game, unlike adversaries like China. Richard Cardillo, director of the National Geospatial Agency, substantially agreed, citing quantum computing and cybersecurity as two areas in which U.S. innovation may come too late. China, they say, thinks routinely in 20-year terms. The Americans do not. They forget and must reinvent and a tradition of technological progress seems to have bred a very distinctive version of victory disease. Too much winning can make you think winning will just go on forever. One such victory disease hangover is being felt, apparently, in the second Sputnishka. General Paul Selva, vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs, told the Center for a New American Security that American complacency about encryption and precision timing have enabled peer adversaries to steal a march in electronic warfare. If you rely on technical virtuosity as a magic bullet, you may find yourself outclassed by an opposition that remembers the old slow grind that you've forgotten. NSA, an Air Force alumna Reality Winner, has agreed to a plea deal over charges related to provision of highly classified documents to The Intercept. The government said that while she was working as an NSA contractor at Fort Gordon, Georgia, she leaked a top-secret report about Russian meddling in the 2016 presidential election. Ms. Winner was charged under the Espionage Act and faced 10 years in prison and $250,000 in fines. Her family continues to support her, with her mother telling the Atlanta Journal-Constitution that, quote, "...I do know that she has always been ready and willing to accept responsibility for any wrongdoing," and that she will accept the consequences. Quote. Ms. Winner's mother has also tweeted that her daughter is a hero and a true patriot. Making due allowance for maternal love and natural affection, we suppose that is one way of looking at it. Gonin Segev, a former member of Israel's Neset and once the country's energy minister, has been arrested on suspicion of spying for Iran. The arrest caps a post-government career that, since the mid-90s, has earned him a serious ne'er-do-wells reputation. He was involved in fraud, claiming his bank account had been looted from an ATM. A security camera showed that he himself had withdrawn the cash. Later, in 2004, he tried to smuggle 32,000 tablets of ecstasy into Israel. He did a couple of years in prison when the authorities and the court didn't buy his explanation that in fact the tablets were just a big consignment of M&M candies. Segev, who's also a medical doctor, had established a practice in Nigeria. That's where he was recruited by Iranian intelligence services. If you run through the traditional acronym of motives for becoming an agent, MICE, that is, money, ideology, compromise, or ego, Segev seems to have been driven by the big M. Money. And joining me once again is Ben Yellen. He's a senior law and policy analyst at the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Ben, a big day today. The U.S. Supreme Court uh, came down with an important privacy ruling here. Fill us in. What do we have going on?
1: Sure. So the decision is Carpenter v. the United States. And this is a decision about cell site location information. So Mr. Carpenter was part of a uh, crime syndicate, a a ring of people who were robbing, ironically, cell phone stores. And as part of a federal investigation into this crime, the government obtained uh, cell site location information records on the whereabouts of Mr. Carpenter. They realized that he was at the location of some of these robberies. They used that information uh, to convict him, and he uh, was sentenced to over 100 years in prison. So Carpenter challenged his arrest on Fourth Amendment grounds, and he said that the government needs a warrant to obtain uh, cell site location information. This presented a novel issue, and that's why it, it made it up to the Supreme Court. Previously, we've been under what uh, we call the third-party doctrine, and I know you and I have discussed this at length in the past. The Supreme Court has held that if you voluntarily Submit information to third parties uh, that the third parties keep as their business records, then you have forfeited your reasonable expectation of privacy in that information. Therefore, you do not have any Fourth Amendment protection in that information. There hasn't been a Fourth Amendment search. And what the Supreme Court was wrestling with here is whether to extend the third party doctrine to instances like this one where. You're not just revealing perhaps one phone number that you dialed or one bank record that you uh, submitted, but rather a wealth of uh, comprehensive information on your whereabouts for a relatively long period of time. And the decision that came down today from Justice Roberts, Chief Justice Roberts, who joined the court's uh, four more liberal members, says that the government does in fact need a warrant to obtain your cell site location information. And this is a massive victory for electronic privacy advocates. It's really a uh, groundbreaking case. The decision rests on basically two principles that distinguish the information being collected here from the information that has been collected in previous third party doctrine cases. And what Justice Roberts says is both the breadth and depth and the comprehensiveness of the information revealed is just so fundamentally different in this case. Cell site location information Reveals not only your whereabouts, but can give uh, any potential viewer, whether it's uh, somebody in the public or whether it's the government, information on your private associations, your religious or political affiliations. I mean, imagine if somebody followed you for a full week, how much information they could find about you. Mm. Whereas in the past, we were talking about how much information a person, somebody could find out about you by virtue of dialing one phone number. I mean, it's just a fundamental difference in the information that's being submitted. And that's, I think, the main justification that Justice Roberts is using here. Uh, The other justification he talks about is the fact that in most third-party doctrine cases, a person should have full knowledge that they are submitting uh, or they are transmitting information that's going into the hands of a third party. So, for instance... When I make a call on my cell phone, I know that I get a cell phone bill every month. I know that that call is recorded. I know that's going to be part of at and business records. Here, Justice Roberts says it's not so clear cut. People have an idea that uh, you know, their information is on, on their physical location is being collected by the cell phone companies. But we don't really, as a society, have a fundamental understanding of how that works. This voluntariness that's so fundamental for the third-party doctrine is just not really present here. We're not actively pressing a button that submits information to a third party. And even if you take out that voluntariness equation, even if you think that simply by turning on our cell phones, we are voluntarily conveying our information to our cell phone company and thus potentially to the government – it's just not really fair to expect that people will go without their cell phones because uh, you know they don't want the government to know where they are at all times. Cell phones are such a fundamental part of our lives. We use them for our familial relations. We use them in our work life and our personal life. It wouldn't be realistic to expect people to stop using cell phones just because they would be forfeiting a right to privacy by pressing the on switch. And that's sort of the basis for for Justice Roberts' decision. A couple of notes, I would say, um, there are no bright lines in the decision. I think a lot of scholars were looking for whether there was some sort of determinant factor uh, that would make the transmission of cell site location information into a Fourth Amendment search. Perhaps there would be some sort of time requirement, like if the information uh, was collected over a period of seven days or more. That would constitute a search. There was no bright line like that in this case. Uh, and that's something that the uh, four dissenting justices have really harped on, that this may, might not be an easy decision for local law enforcement, state law enforcement, or federal uh, law enforcement to follow because there are no uh, bright line standards. But I think the bottom line, uh, it's a major victory for privacy advocates not only do we have a reasonable expectation of privacy in the location information that we submit to our cell phone companies, but we've cut against this very broad third party doctrine. There's now an understanding that just because we voluntarily transmit information to a third party, that doesn't necessarily mean. We have forfeited our reasonable expectation of privacy. It has to do with the quality and the quantity of information that we submit and whether that submission was in fact voluntary. So I think it's a, a groundbreaking
0: decision. Ben Yellen, uh, thanks for explaining it to us. I'm sure this is something you and I are going to continue to talk about in days to come. Thanks for joining us.
1: Absolutely. And I apologize for being so long winded.
0: Oh, no. <laughs> it's, a, <laughs> it's an important one. <laughs> thanks it so sure much, it is. Ben.
1: Thanks, Dave. Bye bye.
0: My guest today is Tavi Kotka. He's the former chief information officer for the nation of Estonia, where they enjoy a national digital identity system. He's a special advisor to the European Commission and is currently CEO of a company called Proud Engineers. Our conversation focuses on Estonia's digital identity system and how it affects privacy and security.
2: First of all, you have to understand Estonian ICP architecture, so it's the fully distributed solution, and to connect all those different distributed systems uh, in Estonia, we have uh, like every person has a unique identifier, and this unique identifier is used in private sector, in healthcare, in government, basically everywhere so if we need to get information about the person uh we can actually combine different data sets between different sectors that's that's the first thing so we have a very strong baseline for for data connectivity and every estonian uh, who is older than 15 years uh, 15 years mandatory they have to have a digital identity so government demands that everybody has to have a digital identity and uh, like this way Using digital identity, we can make, we can sign documents, we can open, uh, authenticate ourselves, uh, like open any kind of government portal or private sector portal. So uh, it's very widely used. They actually have to say that like digital identity is widely used. Uh, the technology is actually different. Like some people using the ID cards, some people using mobile IDs, some people use smart IDs. So. Uh, it's important that everybody has digital identity. It's not so important what's the technology they're using to use it.
0: Now, were there any privacy concerns that went along with that?
2: Uh, funny I get this question always from from US, like uh, is there a privacy concern? Uh people think that if everything is digital and everything is connected, that then they have to give away their privacy. I mean, it might be true if the government has like uh, dictatorship or like they have uh, uh, they want to have full control over the data, what they, what they own, like uh, let's say China. But the is a democratic country. And uh, we believe like other North, North European countries like Sweden or Finland, that uh, being digital is actually more privacy protective compared with being analog. I mean, uh, I take an example. Do you know how, who has looked your health records uh, in your local hospital that you're using? Give me an honest answer. No, I do not. But I know. And that's the point. I mean, everything is digital. Yes, every patient record is in Estonia is digital. But also, I can see who has looked at it. Not only they changed it, but also who has looked at it. Meaning that I actually have more control over my data compared with you. And that's the point. I mean, like if you don't want to be a control-freaking dictatorship with a democratic country, you will build a system like it is built in Estonia that everybody has a power to see who has accessed or approached their data. If there is no reasonable explanation, this person gets fired or even goes goes to jail. And suddenly you become your own big brother. I mean, like, uh, let's say a policeman or a doctor, uh, yes, they have access to your data, actually not a certain amount of data, but they know if they don't have a reason, uh, they will be kicked out from the system and they will lose their jobs. So we suddenly understand that like you can build those digital systems and you can get the benefits of those digital systems, but still keep the privacy or even better, you can increase the privacy and data protection. Because for example, if there is something in my uh, health record that I, I don't like, let's say I have some kind of mental problem uh, 10 years ago. So I, I can actually cover that data. So even though every doctor can see my data, yes, they have to have a reason, but if there's something I, I truly want to forget and I truly want to cover it, I'm allowed to do that. So so if you think about it like uh, this way, you can get both better services, but also increased privacy.
0: How does it compare when it comes to things like identity theft?
2: I'll give an example. If you are able to go to court and prove that somebody has stolen your digital identity, but you still... Uh, stone or obsess your ID card and you haven't given your pins to anybody, if you're able to prove that in court that somebody has stolen your identity, uh, the government takes the liability up to 5 million euros and it has never been used. Hmm.
0: So what are your recommendations? Uh, What could the United States, for example, do to improve our identity
2: systems? It's actually not a question of the identity system. It's a question, uh, do you actually have a pain to solve? Countries think that they want to be digital, but if you ask them why, I mean, I can ask you why you America wants to be digital, like digital government. Why you think you actually need that? It's a complicated task. It's difficult. You have to make many compromises with society. Like, right? and life in the U.S. is good. Actually, it's better than in Estonia. So, uh, so why to change? Why? Why not? Why? Why you actually have to do that? I mean, please answer me.
0: Well, I, I suppose uh, there could be cost savings. There could be uh, security advantages. Um, uh, certainly, things could be easier. I would love to see, for example, uh, uh, medical records to be uh, easier to navigate and uh, to
2: share from doctor to doctor. Okay, but is it painful enough? Is it painful enough to actually start building solutions to that like? Yeah. that's the point, I mean, like the pain in your society hasn't reached the moment where it actually say, explains that or like uh, basically justifies that, uh, OK, we need to do the change now. When you actually articulate that I have certain pain and then the only way to solve that is being digital, then you start thinking, like, how can I solve this problem? And then you find out that, oh, it, ha- it seems to be that being digital is actually more privacy protective than being analog. But without having that pain, like, you never reach to those questions. So in a, like other Nordic and uh, North European countries, we actually share the same pain. Our pain is that we have a lot of land and not too many people. So many people live in rural areas and they don't have physical access to the bank office or government officer. So they have to use IT solutions like uh, internet bank or a government portal or whatever it is like. So we had to push people to use uh, e-services. So, uh, so we have that pain. And, and that's why we are more advanced in this field. But you don't have to pain.
0: That's Tavi Kotka. He's the former chief information officer of Estonia. And that's the CyberWire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com.